Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years. We were in that relationship for 32, and we didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. We have an amazing 25-year-old daughter who's thriving and doing fantastic. And today, I have Dr. Michael McNulty with me on the podcast, and I'm so excited to be able to talk to Michael. We've had a a conversation prior to the podcast, and we talked about the Gottman Method, which is something that he uses in his work with neurodiverse couples, and he is an expert and a trainer in this area. And so, Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, you're, you're very welcome, Mona. I'm happy to do it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, our listeners are always interested in how folks got started working with neurodiverse couples since it is a niche. So can you share a little bit about the work you do and how you got started working with neurodiverse couples? Sure, sure. Well, my own story is that I uh, was diagnosed with dyslexia at age 10. Um, I was always uh, an honor student, but there is a discrepancy in, in my grades that uh, caused them to wonder about my reading abilities. And so I was diagnosed back then and, and went on to actually study people who grew up diagnosed with dyslexia in my doctoral program um, and pr- uh, actually printed an article or had an article published in the Journal of Learning Disabilities uh, um, about um, folks' experiences. And um, I went on from there to specialize in working with, um, with folks with um, various forms of neurodiversity, um, doing individual counseling and therapy. And then when I became Gottman certified and worked much more with couples, I developed a model to be able to adapt the Gottman method for working with neurodiverse couples. That is so phenomenal because one of the things that I love about the Gottman method is that it's based on research and it's, I guess, almost five decades of research that Dr. Gottman and his colleagues have been doing in the love lab. And so I'd love if you could share just a little bit about maybe the foundation of the Gottman method so that our audience can learn a little bit about how you use that with neurodiverse couples. Can you give us kind of a brief overview? Sure, sure. Um, John Gottman and Bob Levinson, um, who are both psychologists, started studying relationships together in 1972. And and at that time, there was hardly any information about why relationships succeeded or failed. Um, And and so all these uh, types of couples therapy were based on really what leaders in the field thought would work with marriage and they weren't based in research. And so Gottman went on to study about, um, to study why marriages succeed and fail and um, what makes marriage work. And um, so um, since 1972, um, John Gottman has studied over 3000 couples and actually went on to uh, develop a model where he and Bob Levinson could um, predict with 90% accuracy uh, whether a marriage would succeed or fail after watching a couple uh, have a conflict discussion on videotape. And and so um, that's how solid his research is. You know, you, you rarely get that kind of that level of predictability um, before they, they thought that 
the gold standard in the field was actually 9% predictability. <laughs> um, well, Big difference. Yeah. Yeah. And then he got, he got 90%. And, and so with all that information, he and um, Dr. Julie Gottman uh, put together a, a model of uh, for us to understand and work on relationships called the sound relationship house. So, the, so they actually put together a theory called the sound relationship house that, that guides couples in terms of what they need to be doing uh, to keep their marriages in a good place or to get their marriages in a better place. I love that. I love everything about the Gottman method. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I love that it's based on actually observing couples in, I know they had the love lab, which was an apartment. And also over time, it's longitudinal research that they've done with couples to see how they've either succeeded or ended up in a very unhealthy marriage or divorcing. So I love that, that you're here to share a little bit about how this applies to neurodiverse couples, because sometimes the theoretical models can, um, can be challenging with, with neurodiverse relationships. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what you've learned. One of the biggest challenges I know neurodiverse couples have is understanding each other when they're communicating. And I would love if you could talk a little bit about some of the strategies or tools that you use with neurodiverse couples so that they under, understand each other's language because sometimes it feels like they're from two different planets well see this is where the the Gottman uh, method is so helpful um, for folks who are dealing with neurodiversity in their relationships Um, you know it basically uh, prescribes how to uh, communicate about various kinds of conflicts or um, arguments and how to how to debrief from arguments how to um, dialogue about ongoing conflicts Um, It gives us a number of tools that are simple and clear and that make communicating much more workable. And and I love that. So let's say that a neurodiverse couple is having the same argument over and over and over again. And in the literature, they call that a communication roundabout in neurodiverse relationships. And it, it's really weighing on both of them. And they can't seem to get beyond that. They're both getting really emotional. What are some of the ways in which the Gottman method can help those couples who are in that communication roundabout? Well, in, in the Gottman method, what we would do is we call that communication roundabout um, a gridlocked perpetual issue. And, and so what Gottman found over time is that 69% of the issues that come up between partners. So like, if you think about the most common issues that come up in relationship, like how to keep the house, um, how to deal with friends, how to deal with family, how to balance the budget, physical intimacy, all those kinds of things, that for every couple, it's normal for them to be in different places around how to handle 69% of those issues um, because they're different people with different personalities. and and the problem becomes if they're not in a good dialogue about these issues, understanding their differences, they become gridlocked. And I think that's very similar to the concept that you're talking about. Yes. Um, yes. And, and the problem is that when people get gridlocked, they, they often 
become flooded. You know, they um, they're they go into fight or flight syndrome. You know, their heart rates race up above 100 beats per minute. They they might feel muscle tension or heat in their faces or um, nervous stomachs or things like that. And usually when people are in that kind of a place, they can't take in new information and they can't think creatively. Um, so Gottman, you know, is really careful. The Gottmans in their work are really careful um, to encourage all clinicians to, to really watch for flooding. And I, I imagine the folks that you're describing get flooded pretty quickly when these yes. same issues come up over and over again. Um, so once people have managed that flooding, then there's lots of different tools, you know, to help people have the better communications with one another. So for instance, soft startup is when people say, basically, I feel about what and I need, you know, so in, when someone's trying to make a complaint, which we all have to do in, in marriage, you know, when you Absolutely. live so closely with someone else, we, we make complaints. I remember my, my grandma said on her 60th wedding anniversary, someone said, did she ever considered divorce? And she said, divorce, no, murder, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, 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 um, and, and, you know, and so when you live closely with someone else and you're sharing a life together, um, it's hard. And, 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 you know, even though that she had a great, um, my grandparents had a great relationship, but she just acknowledged that that's kind of what it is. And, um, and so if we're in the habit of talking about our complaints or our concerns in a gentle way, where we own our feelings and needs and experiences, you know, um, where we complain gently using that kind of framework, it's uh, much easier for people to hear us. Um, often we hold on to complaints too long and they come out as very critical, inferring that something's wrong with the other person or that, you know, they're doing something wrong and then the other person gets defensive and, you know, and so it goes. Um, and and, and we, we try to help people get out of that kind of communication um, and um, communicate more effectively. And and I would say with, with um, folks who where one partner is on the spectrum, probably what would be most helpful is to really stick with the um, the exact desi design of a soft startup. You know, um, I feel about what and I need, and to keep the communication very simple and clear. Um, you know, to facilitate better communication between partners, because um, folks on the spectrum can feel very overwhelmed with, um, you know, complaints that go on, um, you know, for a long time or in, you know, when someone gets too, too in depth, you know, in terms of their concerns, um, they, there's like a point of, they go past the point of um, diminished returns and, um, and so it can be a very effective tool um, yeah. to, to use. Um, yeah, I love that. I love the soft start. And um, the only challenge that I feel some folks might have who are on the spectrum is really getting in touch with what they feel in right. the moment. Right. And, and even their needs, because, yeah. you know, I saw it over and over again in my marriage. Um, 
I don't know that my ex knew what he felt in the moment. And I've even asked him post-divorce, you know, why did you do those things? And he literally will say to me, I don't know. You're not going to get another answer from me because I don't know. So any suggestions for those folks that are autistic when they're being asked or they're being told by their partner what their partner feels and what their partner needs. Number one, to understand, you know, what the partner is sharing, but then also for them to get in touch with their own feelings and needs. Or do they need to say, I need to think about it. You know, I don't know what I'm feeling right now. And, and I know the feeling wheel is something that a lot of folks use in their relationship. So right. I've asked a few questions there. So, um, yeah. you know, the, um, I, and you took away my first go-to place, which is the feeling wheel. <laughs> but, okay, well, great. Let's talk about that. But, Let's talk about that. But, but I, I think that that's right, that, you know, sometimes having that wheel right out there and be, having people look at it and really try and dig around and see what they find um, can help them to pinpoint their feelings. Uh, I, I also think that um, a therapist who's really trying to empathize with the person you know, might offer different ways in which they might be feeling to them to choose from, to look at. Um, sometimes I, I've, I've heard of people kind of um, trying to um, communicate about their emotions and, um, you know, using a scale uh, to be able to um, provide more of a common language to facilitate mm-hmm. communication. Um, these are all kinds of things that I would do if I I was working with a couple in that situation. Yeah, that's, that's really great. I know one of our other guests uses a different color cards, a Mm -hmm. green card, a yellow card and a red card. And he suggests that his clients, you know, create their own cards and on the green card could be something like, I am comfortable talking right now. I'm, you know, in a good space. The yellow card could be, I'm feeling a little stressed, can't talk for very long um, and need some alone time. And then the red card is like, I'm on the verge of a burnout or a meltdown. So this is not going to go anywhere. But I, I think that the feeling wheel, I've seen some friends use it who are in neurodiverse relationships And I've even watched it in action. And I think it can be really, really helpful because I've heard some autistic folks tell me that they, you know, they might feel sadness and they might feel happiness and they might feel anger, but they don't necessarily feel or know how to describe the nuances. Mm -hmm. And the feeling wheel can be just a great resource for that. And you, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Please finish. And I was going to tell our listeners that they can just Google Feeling Wheel and they can they can download a copy of it. Yeah, right, right. You know, the other thing that we do in the Gottman Method, too, is part of the process, you know, as a therapist who works with couples, is we, we draw upon Dan Weil's work. Um, and Dr. Dan Weil passed away a couple of years ago, but had developed um, a method called Collaborative Couples Therapy. And, and essentially what he does when partners are really struggling to communicate with each other is he works to solve the moment. He, in fact, that's the name of his last book. 
um, solving the moment. And uh, essentially, he it's really an interesting way that he worked. He he would kneel by one partner, he'd get down on one knee next to one partner and say, may I speak for you? And then he would put everything the partner was trying to say, or maybe the things that the partner couldn't find the words for into the gentlest of language um, to tell their um, the, the other partner what, what they were struggling with. And, um, and, and sometimes in so doing, um, you can highlight feelings and uncover feelings and, and help people who have a hard time putting, um, you know, words to feelings do so. And then sometimes that will help folks as well. I love that. I love that. In a lot of the conversations I've had with neurodiverse couples, one of the things that I say is that oftentimes they need a translator. And I felt I needed that in my marriage and didn't know why until I learned that we were neurodiverse. I literally was speaking full of emotions and feelings. And my ex was uh, speaking in a rational, logical, and oftentimes blunt way. We were going, you know, we were pissing each other off for, for lack of a better term. We were flooding each other for different yeah. reasons yes. and nothing was getting through in the way we wanted it to get through. So, you know, that creates a lot of emotion for both partners. Right. And, you know, I hate when people say that autistic folks don't have empathy. They have tremendous empathy They may not be able to find the words to share what they're feeling, Mm -hmm. but there's tremendous empathy behind that. So they're both getting hurt. So let's talk a little bit about um, anything beyond the soft start that you would recommend to partners who are having those challenges with communication. What would be like a next step, Michael? Um, you know, uh, can I give one quick example before yes, I do that, please. Mona? Yes. Um, I was just thinking as you were talking of couples where, um, you know, as a Gottman therapist, as a certified Gottman therapist, and as a master trainer for the Gottman Institute, I, I get referrals of couples who have often seen three or four or five other therapists over the years. Sure. And and one thing that's just so fascinating to me is that, um you know, so sometimes what I'll see if is if a man is on the spectrum and um, a woman is, you know, psychologically minded, um, you know, and, and able to really talk about her feelings, it's like um, the one person has perfected their ability to talk about that over time, and the other person has just not made any progress. And so the the communication becomes more and more frustrating because the person who's trying to, um, who wants their feelings to be heard and to be understood will find six or seven or eight different ways to communicate about what they're they're feeling, which just, um, you know, really overwhelms the other partner. It gets so far away from the simple kinds of communications that work much better when, when people are on the spectrum and dealing with communication issues. Um, so if we look to the Gottman method to answer your question um, around what else do we have, have in the Gottman method that sort of helps that people can look up right on the internet now um, are 
um, how to work with what John Gottman, Dr. John Gottman calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah. And so these are um, criticism, you know, which is trying to make a complaint and um, treating your partner like they have a character flaw. Um, so they feel criticized or like there's something wrong with them um, when you're just trying to express a complaint. So it's like a complaint gone wrong. Um, defensiveness is when people feel criticized and then they launch a counterattack um, that comes off as critical to their partner. So they, mm -hmm. the partners get into criticism, defensiveness, criticism, defensiveness. Um, contempt is when partners are disgusted uh, with the, you know, when one partner is disgusted with the other and feels or feels superior to the other, uh, you know, and um, and stonewalling is when one partner becomes overwhelmed and shuts down um, in a discussion and it makes the other partner kind of crazy because they think they're being blown off basically. Yeah. Um, and, and so each of those four horsemen have antidotes. So for criticism, it's to complain gently or, or soft startup for defensiveness. It's, uh, to take responsibility, even if for a small part of the problem, because when we do so people begin to feel heard and that they soften, you know, rather than getting into that criticism defensiveness pattern um, with contempt, which is the one we have to be most careful about because it's the biggest predictor of divorce. Uh, you know, when people get disgusted with each other or, or you know, they um, act superior to one another, um, it, it's the biggest predictor of divorce. And there people have to really try to talk about themselves and their feelings and needs and not about their partner. Um, as they're trying to work something out. When people are contemptuous, they tend to totally focus on what their partner is doing wrong or why their partner is doing what they're doing. And, and they're in that mode and they never get to the heart of the matter of what they need to be talking about. Um, with stonewalling, we encourage people to take breaks and to calm down and then come back to the conversation when they're less overwhelmed. But I, I think all of these tools are particularly useful for couples in, in the situations that you're describing. Yes, absolutely. And if you could see me now, Michael, I would be raising my hand to every single one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And when I learned about them, I was like, wow, I did it all. And I think one of the biggest at the end of our relationship was the contempt. And our relationship ended, you know, after 30 years. And I see so many neurodiverse couples in that contempt stage right. because they feel they're not heard. They feel they've read every book they can get their hands on, which, you know, I raised my hand. I did that. I'm a social worker. You know, I have my master's and my PhD in social work. If I couldn't figure this out, you know, what, what was my problem? And that is a major challenge for so many couples in general but for neurodiverse couples I think sometimes the autistic partner just literally shuts down and I don't know that it's stonewalling yeah. it's just they can't handle the anxiety the stress nothing they do is correct nothing they do is right they feel like they have no value and i know i i made my ex feel like that it wasn't intentional right. but there's so many couples that talk about this so and i love that you explained both 
the Four Horsemen, and then the antidotes. What would you say to a neurodiverse couple who's in that stage where almost everything that comes out of the neurotypical or non-autistic partner's mouth is contempt? Um, you know, I, I think you, one, you have to be very, very careful. Uh, another thing Dr. John Gottman has often said is that uh, when people express contempt, it's like pouring acid on love. And the danger mm -hmm. is if you pour too much acid on love, at some point, there's not going to be much love left. And then that's why it's the biggest predictor of divorce. Um, I, I, you know, what, what I would say to couples, I think what you're talking about would be sort of a contempt stonewalling kind of process. And in, in Gottman language, stonewalling is what you just described, like shutting down. Sometimes it involves feeling like one can do no right, so I try. Um, and so they kind of shut down and it looks almost like they're putting up a wall, but they're really overwhelmed, you know? Okay. And, okay. And, and so if I was working with a couple in that situation, I would make them very aware of, um, of the fact that there is a lot of contempt in their discussions. And I, I would also say it's understandable that there'd be a lot of contempt and, and stonewalling, um, you know, based on most of the time when people uh, come in for treatment, uh, or, you know, or a lot of the time, as you say, I shouldn't say most of the time, uh, when people come in for treatment, they come in undiagnosed and don't know that the one right. partner is neurodivergent. And so it's sort of like, um, you know, the, the, the one partner is, um, gets, the other partner gets so frustrated, the neurotypical partner gets so frustrated over time and, and doesn't understand the difference. The person who's neurodivergent doesn't understand the differences and um and then there's multiple like train wrecks over and over right. again right. right and 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 um and the um the neurodivergent person ends up feeling beat up you know in the in, in a certain kind of way and um uh as does the person who's neurotypical in other ways and right. um and it's just a, a really difficult predicament to be in so i i emphasize that with couples and, and then say that this is a particular pattern that they seem to have gotten into. And I really try to help the person, the neurotypical person who is expressing the contempt to, um, to really get back to talking about themselves, talking about their feelings, talking about their needs in a workable way. You know, again, one thing I do different with Gottman interventions when I'm working with neurodiversity is I'm, I'm really careful to keep all the um, the um, you know the, the ways in which people use the antidotes or gentle start start up to oh, for it to be you know um, short but sweet or something like that. You know that it's yeah. it's, it's um, uh, you know it less is more so to speak and. And, and people can understand each other. It's when things get overly complicated and the neurodivergent person can't follow the conversation that things become, you know, that they break down. So I really try to help, um, you know, simplify the, the conversation and, and get it much more clear. I, I also draw upon some of the skills from, um, from 
um, is it's A A N E if I remember right. correctly. Yes. Yeah. From, from there, I've I've gone through their training. I draw upon some of their skills too that are so focused and and brief and and and, and very much in accord with many of the Gottman tools as well. So uh, hopefully. As I do that, as a person understands themselves better, as, as they grieve, you know, as a, the person who's neurodivergent and as a neurotypical person grieve more and, and, and have then have um, using these tools, have an ability to have better discussions about um, the things that they're struggling with, um, you sometimes see things improve. Other times, I think people can be at a you know, past the point of no return, which is sad. Um, but um, but I, I think it's definitely worth, um, you know, giving these kinds of tools a, a real try and working hard with them because I've also seen that they can make a world of difference with folks. And I've seen other clinicians work with these tools or the AANE tools and, and, and they do make a world of difference. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I've said it before on the podcast, my ex and I, while we were separated, we went to three different counselors, three different therapists. None of them knew anything about neurodiversity at all. Yeah. In fact, in fact, after I found out about it, I called all of them and asked them if they had any expertise in, you know, working with neurodiverse couples. And they said no. And I said, do you know anybody in the area that does? And they said, no. So, you know, I was so determined to either go back to them and, you know, have them help us since they had had, you know, some um, sessions with us or find somebody local. But it was very hard. Now I know there's a lot more resources out there. This was 2017. This was right around the time that AANE was looking to start their Couples Institute and um, there's training for couples and then there's training for therapists, which is amazing and phenomenal. So I know I, I just I love the Gottman method and I love everything that we're talking about. And I want to talk about some specifics that I've uh, seen come up over and over again with the folks in my the free uh, peer support groups that I run. One is the meltdowns. And this is especially difficult for those couples that have young children, but yet these seem to happen um, more often than the non-autistic or neurotypical partner would like to see. So an example, Michael, might be, you know, a partner comes home from work, they've had a full day, maybe they've had to mask at work because folks that they work with don't even know they're on the spectrum or they haven't wanted to share and then the kids are screaming, the baths need to be taken, you know, the dinner needs to be made and whatever else, and a meltdown ensues. So I'm wondering if there are some techniques, strategies that um, you can share with those couples that experience this on a regular basis to help with reducing meltdowns or shutdowns that happens too. you know, the partner yeah. goes in front of the TV or the computer and tunes everything out. And that creates a lot of challenges. Mona, could you um, give me some examples of what the, the meltdowns you're talking about look like? Because I hear yeah. people use that term to describe different things. And I want to make sure that I'm speaking to um, what you want me to speak to. 
Absolutely. So for the autistic person, it's literally, it, it's a lot like the flooding, you know, their body gets dysregulated. Um, they may not even hear anything. The feelings in their body are overwhelmed. And sometimes it becomes a lot of screaming and anger and blunt comments yeah. like, you know, just leave me alone. I just need some peace or um, I you take care of that. You know, I've been at work all day. Now those things happen in any neurotypical relationship, you know, Um, but, but with the autistic partner, it's literally that they just don't have the, the, it's more than energy. It's the ability to add one more thing because they've literally been masking or attempting to get through the workday and they're just beyond overwhelmed. If we were to look at the the scale or the cards, they are on red and anything that they touch or do will just make things so much worse. So it turns into screaming or, or anger or even throwing things, you know? Right. Right. I, you know, what I think would be so important to do in in that kind of a situation is to sort of forecast what reentry to home life might look like Mm -hmm. for that person. And um, when you, when you see a pattern along those lines and um, you know, I've heard of therapists prescribing some sort of transition activity like working out if that's possible or a long walk or something like that before the person re-enters the household to help them make that transition. Um, I would recommend stuff like that. I, I also would think about even though it's the end of the day uh, for the person who's coming home um, who's autistic that the end of the day is a hard thing, you know, that yeah. a lot, as you're saying, a lot of times people, you know, kind of try to mask their symptoms and get through the day unnoticed and work extra hard to do so. And by the time they get home, they have no bandwidth. Right. And, um, and so, you know, the, the, the other partner, you know, particularly if there's young kids involved, which are all, which is always challenging, you know, may, may want to do a handoff or may, may want to make sure that there's more shared responsibilities. And, um, you know, it may be that the other partner is just expecting more than is possible and, and has to somehow um, make peace with that and, and then look for the things that the person who's autistic can do at that stage of the day that help uh, and and kind of play to their strengths, uh, you know, or the strengths that are still up and running at the end of a long day. I think that is really helpful. And I think that, you know, some folks are at the point of no return, but some folks are just so frustrated because they don't have either the therapist or the translator or the coach or somebody that understands neurodiversity to help them. But I so agree with you, Michael, 
you know, understanding not only what your strengths are, but what your partner's strengths are. Some people have sensory issues that prevent them from being able to be around kids in a bath where they're splashing or, you know, the feel of the soap or the shampoo or the scents, but they may not have shared that with their partner. So instead of communicating that in a way that's respectful and can build, you know, trust and and understanding, they might have a meltdown because the thought of having to be in the bathroom with a bathtub and the splashing water and the sounds and all that just unravels them. So that's where going back to that, you know, communication and understanding your needs and sharing them in a respectful way is so, so critical. Can we talk a little bit? Oh, Monica, okay. I add one more thing. And, and 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 also just the general um, ways in which the Gottman suggests that we manage flooding are so important, you know, so... Uh, you know, if, if people have uh, Fitbits and they can see what their blood, um, their heart rates are, you know, what their beats per minute are, um, and, and they're up above 100, um, the, the person who's experiencing that should be taking a break and trying to attempt some form of relaxation uh, before returning to the situation, uh, particularly if, if they're in the midst of conflict, you, you know, so... Um, they should do some deep breathing, some yoga, or actually anything that's healthy that helps them to calm down. And, and really, people tend to need at least 30 minutes to accomplish that. But um, as long as they're in that flooded state, besides all the other things you described, they, they can't take in new information and they can't think creatively and they, they lose their sense of humor. So it's, it's the wrong time to try to have... Um, an amicable conversation about something that's conflictual, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I so agree with you. And again, I, I, I love the Gottman method and I highly recommend to any of our listeners, if you haven't um, either looked at their website or uh, checked out one of their books, I would highly recommend that you do that because there's so much valuable information. We're just barely touching the surface here. And I think it could be so helpful to so many of the couples out there. So I want to talk a little bit about the social differences that might come up in a neurodiverse relationship Mm -hmm. and um, specifically around those couples where one is much more social And oftentimes it may be the non-autistic or neurotypical person and the neurodivergent or autistic person does not want to socialize with people that are not interesting to them or that they have nothing to say to or nothing of depth. You know, small talk may not be of interest to them or when they don't like a person. Um, My my father was, uh, we later found out after he passed away, my, my sister and I know for sure he was on the spectrum and he literally cut out all his family Hmm. he stopped talking to them because it was just they weren't of value to him it was a weird thing for us to see but now we understand it so what would you share maybe with both um partners in the neurodiverse relationship about how to manage and, and handle in a in a positive way the differences in social needs 
Well, so in, in the Gottman method, um, that would be a gridlocked, uh, or a potentially gridlocked perpetual problem. You know, if if they if the couple really struggled with it and was having great difficulty making progress on it, and so what we do in the Gottman method is we slow down the conversation, and people use uh, tools that help them to to dialogue to get. Uh, you know, out of gridlock and more into a comfortable dialogue with each other. There's a couple of tools. One is called Dreams in Conflict, where the partners interview each other about the issue and where they're coming from and and why. And sometimes when people understand each other with more depth, um, or even if they just understand a little, each other a little bit more clearly, that that paves a way to compromise. And then there's a really simple compromise exercise called the art of compromise, which um, involves people saying what they can and can't compromise around and um, comparing, you know, um, uh, those things. Um, each partner compares what they can and can't compromise to the other, and then they formulate a, a solution around that. Uh, the, an, another one is called the Rappaport, which is where Partners basically use soft startup to talk about an issue like that where they're really stuck, and um, and and you know basically trying to get to the positive need that each partner has. I mentioned that exercise because as people dialogue, they write down what each other is saying, you know, what they're hearing from their partner, and then they repeat it back to their partner. So it really kind of slows down the conversation. It can keep it simple. Um, there's a mechanism for making sure that everyone's being understood. Now, when it comes to the specific issue of uh, socialization, I, I think you know people probably would do well to kind of rate how important it is to have a spouse join, you know, a, a social event or how important it is to the, the neurodivergent spouse not to join, you know, um, I the, love that. the event. And so um, we would, maybe we could call one, um, you know, like a command performance, like what are the command performances where the neurotypical spouse really needs the neurodivergent spouse to be there? Right. Um, what are, you know, what are the um, opt-outs that the, you know, the the neurodivergent partner will just not feel comfortable attending, um, and and like what are the in-between places? What are the gray areas? And um, and and I, you know, and then coming up with some sort of understanding around socialization that socialization will be different for them as a couple. Um, you know, kind of given their different needs for extroversion and introversion, um, you know, with introversion being often associated with, um, you know, with, with autism. Um, does that make sense so far? Totally. And, and it, it is actually perfect because I think, uh, thank you so much for that, Michael. I don't think we've talked about this on the podcast yet, but I think it's a great way in which both partners can get their needs met and also understand the limitations. 
I love the idea of looking at each potential event or experience, you know, for socializing, whether it's with family or friends or a work-related event, or if you have children, an event for your, your child or your children, whatever it is, even going shopping to the mall or going out to eat, I think having a scale where you can literally rate from one to five, let's say, or even one to three, it is critical that you be there, you know, meaning the neurodivergent autistic partner with me for this event. Let's say it's a wedding of a family member. You know, I wouldn't want to go alone. Personally, me, I wouldn't want to go alone to a wedding for a family member. However, if after an hour, you know, you need to leave or you need to go out and sit in the car or take a walk you know, if we could talk about that beforehand, because I know, you know, my partner can only handle an hour of an event with 200 people, right. that reduces so much anger and misunderstanding and can create such trust and um, appreciation where not doing that can create so much contempt we go back to that again um, and therefore, you know, more um, challenges to the relationship. So, yeah, I, I love that. And I think a lot of our listeners will benefit from that. And I hope a lot of them will use that because I think it can be really, really helpful. Any other thoughts on that before we um, go to another topic? Well, you know, I, I was just going to say it, it's interesting. My, my grandfather was not autistic but he was a assistant state's attorney in Chicago in the time of Al Capone and oh, would, wow. would, would put away criminals like that who would escape from jail and threaten his family. And he, so he was kind of paranoid, I think, because of that, he really kept to sure. himself. He was a wonderful guy with a great sense of humor, but my, my grandmother loved to socialize. You know, if she could have, she would have held parties at their house probably four times a week or something wow. like that. And <laughs> it, she, she was just a lot of fun. So, but they worked something out where the parties could go on and he could sit in the front of the TV and watch the baseball game or whatever sports game was on. Um, different people would circulate um, into his area and watch TV with him and then they'd circulate out and then she would be more the host in the main part of the house wow. and and it worked beautifully for them and and um, I, I think those kinds of compromises really are possible if people use the tools like the Gottmans have developed um, and, and the ones from AANE as well to um, to really be able to have um, significant discussions about these topics and and that result in plans or strategies i love it i love it and and i know our listeners know this but sometimes those conversations are difficult to have with your partner so you know reach out to a therapist or a coach or you know somebody that can be that translator because when you get into those heated discussions, sometimes neither one can hear the other, no matter what techniques or tools or strategies they use, because they may be too far gone for them to hear each other. So thank you, Michael. I, I really appreciate that. Another issue I really see a lot of couples struggle with 
is kind of the black and white thinking and the bluntness with which um, information or ideas can be shared by the autistic partner with the non-autistic partner. And I know in my marriage, I took everything personal. I mean, I don't do that anymore, but I did for 30 plus years. And I didn't realize that my ex being blunt was just the way he was comfortable communicating. And it wasn't an affront to me. He wasn't trying to be critical or contemptuous or whatever, but I took it that way. I know a lot of folks are struggling with when they're, uh, their autistic partner might say something that's blunt or seems rather cold and then they start taking it personal and get hurt but there's no offense meant at all Mm -hmm. and it's just the person kind of using their you know more black and white thinking not realizing that their tone can impact the way the message or the information is received So is there anything that you can share with our listeners that might be helpful for the autistic partner who isn't aware of the tone or their black and white thinking, how it's coming across to their partner, things that they might be able to think about before they communicate certain things and the ways in which the neurotypical or non-autistic partner might do things differently or receive things differently because I know I took everything personal and it really affected my mental health for sure. Mm-hmm. I, well, I, I do think that that is really a tough issue. And um, for people like you and me who are social workers and therapists and, and stuff, um, you know, we, we got into our professions uh, because we are aware of our emotions and we yeah. are sensitive. <laughs> and, and so it, it can, it can be hard. I, I was thinking, um, you, you know, I, I do a lot of relief work in Sri Lanka, um, mm-hmm. and have been for years since the tsunami, I go and I teach trauma counseling skills there. Uh, when I would go, sometimes people would say continuously to me, when I get there, you're very fat. You're very fat, like oh. everywhere I go, <laughs> and, wow. and I was so, you know, self-conscious about that issue. And in their culture, it didn't mean the exact same thing it means here. You know, it meant that you're in good health, or you're. It wasn't a, people weren't saying it to insult me or to criticize me. You know, it was more of a positive thing. And and so after a while, uh, I just got desensitized to it. I realized, oh, this means something different here, and um, and I, I've got to not take it the same way. And and actually, having that challenge um, has helped me to be much less sensitive all around. And, and so, what I might say to encourage the neurotypical partner is that if you can keep in mind that the neurodivergent partner, um, you know, isn't intending um, to, um, cause the kinds of feelings you feel. Um, and, um, and, and if you can encourage the person to try and hear what their partner is saying differently, that sometimes can help. Um, it's, it is hard though, that when you live with someone and that happens over and over and over again, but, um, 
if people are well educated about what autism is and what sometimes can happen with communications with um, with autistics, um, that uh, that's that sometimes helps. I, I think the other things that could help in um, the AANE tools, there's a duck bunny exercise, and yes. um, you know where people look at the picture and it's either a duck or a bunny. Um, for, for most people, it's either or, and then they have to work really hard to see the other image in the picture that they they didn't see at first. And um, sometimes people just having that sort of image to work with um, helps them to better understand that there's multiple perspectives um, on, you know, that things can be seen in different ways. And so sometimes that helps with some of the black and white thinking that you were referring to um, for, there are also some tools around um, apologizing and asking for certain needs to be met. And I, I think during, in the Gottman method, we call it like the the weekly meeting about the relationship, the state of the union meeting that the Gottmans recommend that all couples should be having, uh, yeah. you know, that if people can ask for apologies or ask for things to be different or even just process their experience in some way together, uh, there might be more of a meeting of the minds around, um, around some of these differences and things may go more smoothly. And I say may because tone is a hard thing to change or if you speak bluntly, yes. it's a hard thing to change. The, the other thing of the Gottman method, I know I'm going on here. But I, no, this is terrific. Uh, there, there is a, uh, an exercise in the conflict skills uh, called the aftermath of a regrettable incident. So if one partner was to say something blunt that came off as really hurtful to the other, they go through this protocol where they talk back and forth about what they were feeling at the time that it happened, um, what, you know, their, their reality of what happened between them, um, what got triggered if something got triggered for either of them. Um, they move on to um, maybe what set them up to, to have a regrettable incident and, and kind of end with talking about what they could do differently next time. And, and so sometimes processing experience can help. Again, that particular exercise, you know, can become pretty complicated if people let it. But for neurodiverse couples, it's probably better just to keep it really simple and straightforward and stay right with the protocol, um, you know, to make it a workable thing to do. Um, and, and, and again, I say that that may help. I don't know that it would, but at least if the neurotypical partner got more of an understanding that their partner really had no idea of how they were coming off or, or um, of how what they said was heard. Um, and, you know, that, that, that really can help. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just a, a very small example might be you know, the autistic partner is in the middle of doing something creative on their computer. And this would happen in my household. So I'm sharing it. And um, it'd be time for dinner. And I would get a snide remark, or, you know, a look, and I would take it personal, because I had just spent, you know, however long making dinner, and I wanted us to sit down and eat as a family. 
But I think looking through a neurodiverse lens, it wasn't personal. It was more, I need to finish that my ex needed to finish what he was working on to come to a conclusion that he felt comfortable leaving the activity and moving on to, you know, dinner. Um, Dinner wasn't as important to him as it was to me. And the family time wasn't as important to him as it was to me in that moment. In that moment, the most important thing was for him to finish whatever he was working on. And change can be very difficult, you know, for neurodivergent folks, especially when it's around their special interest and they're doing something that that they really enjoy. And I think that's for people across the board, but I think it's even more challenging sometimes for neurodiverse couples. So again, a lot of fantastic information, strategies, tools that you've shared. And I know we're at the end of our time on the podcast. And Michael, I know I could probably talk to you for another few hours, but I wanted to leave our audience with any last kind of words of wisdom or things that you have found have worked for neurodiverse couples that maybe we haven't talked about just last thoughts that you have as we close out this particular episode you know we spent a lot of time talking about conflict today and i always tell couples any couple that comes to me that really to successfully work on a relationship you have to simultaneously work on conflict which you assume will always be there to work on. Um, And um, you also have to work on friendship, you know, and in in Gottman terms, the the marital friendship is really the basis for um, emotional intimacy and and romance um, and and all that kind of stuff. Um, And and so if we had had more time, what I I would have talked about is, you know, how to really know your partner well. And the Gottmans have tools for these. Um, They they call these tools um, love map tools. And in fact, um, for folks who are interested, there is a free card deck available in in the apps for your phones. Uh, If you go to the app store, um, I know at least for Apple phones and um, um, I'm forgetting the other platform, um, Android phones. Right? Yeah. There we go. And and so that that um, have all these different card decks that are different ways to always keep working on the relationship, including these friendship card decks. And so there's love map card decks, which are card decks where people can use to um, answer, try and answer questions about their partner. They draw a card, they answer a question about their partner. And um, and, and their partner gently tells, tells them whether they got it right or wrong and gently corrects them if they got it wrong. Um, and this helps people to know each other. There's a map that people can write out of their partner's life, which um, could be very helpful in terms of helping um, partners in neurodiverse relationships understand each other's worlds. Um, there are exercises that occur daily on remembering to appreciate each other. And if you're living with neurodiversity, that, that's such a complicated and hard thing to, 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 to work with. It can also be kind of a wonderful thing at the same yeah. time if it goes well. And, um, and, and I've seen both kinds of situations um, and many in between. But, um, you know, you're really you're kind of taking on a challenge together 
for couples in that situation, what I would say to them is you're taking on a challenge together um, that, that's, that's, that can be really, really hard. And so it's important to uh, try to appreciate each other as much as possible and to do that regularly. Um, it's important to find those ways that people can connect with each other, you know, um, that, that really um, help people to feel um, more connected than, than they have felt. Um, and, um, and, and so again, there's card decks that help with that kind of thing. And, and all of that really culminates in more of a positive perspective that helps people to manage the different types of conflicts that, that arise um, in this situation. So I guess what I'm trying to say is um, make sure you work on conflict, absolutely. And be, because um, understanding each other, developing a strategy, developing a plan around your differences that um, both partners can um, live with and, and deal with and that helps really makes a world of difference. Um, and simultaneously, you know, finding ways to connect as friends um, is, is so important and sometimes extra challenging, but, um, you know, we do it if we work on it, you know, and then so, um, I, or it's, I guess it's more likely done if people really work on it. And, and, and I've seen people again, work on this and do wonderful things with it. So that, that would be, I guess, how I would close. Yeah, that's fantastic because when we get stuck on the conflict and all the challenges and the potential problems of being in our neurodiverse relationships, we forget about what brought us so close in the beginning and what attracted us to our partners and you know what we used to laugh about and what we used to have fun doing. So I totally agree and I think that's a great way to end. And Michael, I created the Neurodiverse Love Conversation cards, which I'm going to send you a deck. Oh, wonderful. And there's, yeah, there's specific questions that I wish I had answers to in my relationship. And they've been really helpful to a lot of folks. So if folks want to reach out to you, Michael, I don't know if you're taking new clients or not. What is the best way for them to get in touch with you? And are you taking new clients? Um, right now, I'm just taking intensive clients who I work with, um, you know, over a, a weekend. So where I would work with them Friday night and all day Saturday and all day Sunday. And I do that through an organization called Couples Therapy, Inc. Um, I probably at a later date, um, I will you know be able to take a new clients into my practice but right now I, i'm pretty full uh to, to contact me probably the best way to contact with me is through my email address which is mike mcnulty phd at gmail.com so that's m-i-k-e-m-c-n-u-l-t-y phd at gmail.com and, and also um you could visit my website which is chicagorelationshipcenter.com and I do sponsor and lead trainings for um, professionals as well as uh, weekend workshops uh, for couples who seek to um, learn about the Gottman method and, and put the various tools into practice over the course of a weekend to, um, to, to learn it very thoroughly. So um, wonderful. I, I, I guess I answered your question there. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Okay. That's fantastic. 
So, Michael, I know that we could keep talking, but I can't thank you enough for sharing so much valuable information, so much information that I know is going to help a lot of neurodiverse couples. And I look forward to um, hearing more about the work that you're doing. And hopefully we'll have some folks that want to do the uh, weekend intensive and it will be helpful for them to work with a counselor, a therapist who really understands neurodiversity. Thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate you sharing your expertise and your time with our audience. Well, well, thank you so much, Mona. And thank you for all the wonderful work you do through this podcast and um, with your peer support groups. Um, 